Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. This morning we are in verses 21 through the first verse of chapter 5. And I hope as we continue to make our way through the book of Galatians that we would say, we're thankful for God's word. We're thankful for this word that he has given to us. And that in the book of Galatians, we behold our great God. We behold the magnificent righteousness of Jesus Christ. We see his amazing redemptive work on the cross and that we realize it's nothing in us that's done that. It's nothing in us that's made us even worthy to be saved. But it's because of God's own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Someone might dare to die for a righteous person. But who would dare to die for sinners? for their enemies, for those who are rebellious against God. So we praise him for the salvation that he alone can give. Would you stand with me this morning as we read verses 21 in chapter 4 through 5-1 of Galatians. At the end I will say this is the word of the Lord and together we will say thanks be to God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has, ha who has a husband. Now you, brothers... Like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him 
who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to read the book of Revelation, it's not long until you encounter Jesus' seven letters to seven churches. And it's there in the book of Revelation, the risen Lord, the Lamb who was slain, the one who it says is like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, whose hairs of his head were like white wool, as white as snow, whose eyes were like flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, his voice like one of the roar of many waters, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun shining in its full glory." It's this one who directly addresses the seven churches and there is a theme that you pick up on as you read each of these letters. It's a common refrain, it's like a repeated chorus that you hear at the end. Jesus says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an imperative given by Jesus himself saying to the churches, Listen up. But don't many people have ears? Don't many people hear? Yes, many people have ears and many hear, but do they have spiritual ears? Are they able to listen to the spiritual truth and receive it and obey it? And how many of us have heard it said from our children, from our spouse, from our friends, are you even listening to me? They don't want us just to hear with our ears the sounds that are coming from their lips. They want us to hear and understand and respond to what they are saying. And it was fatal to the churches if they had physical ears but did not have spiritual ears. It meant judgment if they were able to hear but did not actually listen to what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said through Jesus Christ our Lord. We want people to listen to us. We want people to hear us. And that is most important when we are making a request. We're asking for something or we're asking someone to do something. We want them to listen and to respond to our request. Paul has been making an appeal to the churches in Galatia 
This is not merely a request, though. He is not simply asking something and is indifferent. No, this is a pleading. This is an urging with the Galatians. It shows the great lengths that Paul goes to in order to be heard and listened to by the Galatians. And with each plea, there is an escalation. He pled for them to remember the work of the Spirit in their lives that happened when they were saved. He pled with them that they would remember how Abraham was saved and urged that kind of faith in their own lives. He pled with them on account of Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, who gives us our identity, who makes us sons of God's and heirs according to the promise. He pleads with them on account of their past life before Christ and the adoption now that they have received in coming to Christ and being welcomed in the family of God. He pled with them on account of their friendship, their gospel-based friendship, their relationship that was a beautiful picture of the gospel. In all of this, why is he pleading? Because he is warning them the true path to freedom is not found in returning to the law in order to work for your salvation. It's not your activity that you need in order to gain God's approval, God's acceptance, or God's love in your life. It's not your religious activity that's going to get you to God. That comes through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. And if it doesn't, then you don't know God and you aren't saved. That's the Galatian predicament. Paul is saying, I was there, I preached the gospel to you, and you believed and trusted Christ, but now there is something else that is trying to worm its way in. It's this distortion of the gospel. And I fear that if you fall for this false teaching, my ministry will have been in vain. He's not saying necessarily that they aren't saved. I mean, you hear Paul say this, right? My brothers... My little children, don't do this. Don't fall for this. Don't be manipulated. Don't be tricked by this. It's the same trick that was there in the Garden of Eden. Don't fall for it. Don't think that you can work your way to God by your religious activity. This is our problem also, dear brother and sister. We are like the pig that wants to return to the mud. We are like the dog that wants to return to his vomit. And what's at stake is a matter of how we are saved. How are we as Christians justified before God? Are we justified? Are we made innocent? Are we accepted? Are we favored? Are we loved by faith plus our works? Or are we justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And so Paul offers a plea from God's word. Will they hear it? Will they accept it? Will they listen to it? Will we hear it? Will we accept it? Will we listen to it and obey it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to this church. So what does Paul urge us to do from our text this morning, from God's word, Hear this final plea. Well, the first thing that Paul tells us is listen to the contrast in the law. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. The first 
urging of Paul is listen to the contrast in the law. Listen to the contrast in the law. Paul begins by shining a light on the Galatians' inconsistencies. Inconsistency of thought. Inconsistency of practice. I would dare say that we do not like to be shown our own inconsistencies. Where we have gone wrong. Where we have erred. And it could even come from what sounds like it it comes from a good place. From a sound place. From an accurate place. Paul draws them out and so draws them out with this simple question. Listen to it. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Doesn't that sound good? There was this will, this desire among the Galatians. There was this pull where they said, we want to be under the law. We might hear that and think, wow, what an admirable thing. You want to be under the law. Good for you, Galatians. It might even inspire some jealousy in us. Well, I wish I was as spiritual as those Galatians. Here, Paul is specifically talking about the Mosaic law, the law from the first five books in the Bible. That's what they want. That's what they want to live by. They want to live by that law that was given to Moses there on Mount Sinai. They want to obey its laws, its rules, its regulations, its ceremony. They want to be circumcised to show that they are in. They want to nail it down, lock it down. They want to show that they really are children of Abraham. They want Mount Sinai to be their way of life. But in what Paul says here, he tips his hand for to be under the law is to be controlled by the law under the dominion of the law. And that is a dangerous problem because the law never gives life. The law shows that you are a sinner. The law shows that you are in a desperate need because you can never keep the law perfectly. You can never live by the law because you and I will always fail. Living under the law is dangerous because the law condemns. And so to be under the law is to be under sin, controlled by sin, dominated by sin, and enslaved to sin. That's what Paul's saying so dangerous. You want sin to rule over you. And the rule of sin over your life, the dominion of sin over your life, what does that lead to? Death. Sin is a tyrant, dear brother and sister. And here is the irony, as Paul says this. He says, you who desire the law, you who desire to be under the law, do you even listen to the law? You who say, I will submit to the law, I will be under the law, I will obey everything that it says. Have you even read it? Do you even know what it is to keep the law? The underlying position is this. If you, Galatians, had listened to the law, you would have known better. You would have known what it said. You would not have taken this position if you had just read your Bibles. And so Paul appeals to the law. And it comes from, again, these first five books of the Bible known as the Torah 
And he draws our mind then all the way back to Genesis. I wonder though if there's a danger here for us Christians. We make decisions in our lives. We have desires, aspirations, wants. We want to be very spiritual. We want to be looked upon as pious and holy saints of God. We want a good reputation in the community of faith, in the church. We want to be considered good, moral, evangelicals. And we carry our Bibles into the church. We even hold up our Bibles and say a nice little pledge. We can put our Bibles in a prominent place in our homes. But have we ever read it? Not read it for information. Not read it for more Bible knowledge. Not read it to impress others in the church. Not read it so that we can check off our to-do list. But really read it. Not to hear what we want to hear, but read it with the intention that God, through his word, would shape and mold and fashion us more into the likeness of Christ. God's word is meant to change you. God's word is meant to do a work in you. Read it with the expectation that it will change you. Read it with this thought. I might read something today that I'm not going to like to hear. Because it's going to tell me I'm a sinner. It's going to show me I'm wrong. God's word is going to rebuke me today. God's word is going to reprove me today. God's word is going to encourage me today. God shows his love to me so much that he will not leave me where I am, but will move me closer to him through the discipline that comes from reading his word. Paul points to this. If you had listened to the law, you would have come to a different conclusion. And so your life direction would be different and your desires would be different. What about for us? If you had really listened to God's word, your understanding, your life, your desires will be different. And so Paul brings us to hear the word of the Lord. This is what you should have heard of Galatians if you read the law. Abraham had two sons. One son birthed by a slave woman. One son was birthed by a free woman. It does not take too much digging to find out what Paul is talking about. He's drawing us all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 16 and 17. The slave woman, who is later named in our text, is Hagar, and her son, who is not named here, is Ishmael. While the free woman, who is not named here, is Sarah, and her son, who is named later, is Isaac. There's a contrast between these two women, and so a contrast also between their two sons. What's the difference? The son of the slave woman was what? Born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Specifically, Isaac was born through the promise of God. And do you remember that promise? We go all the way back to Genesis 15. There the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and God brings Abraham outside and says, Look toward the heaven, Abraham. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What a promise of God. 
Abraham, you have no children, you have nothing, but don't worry, here is what I promise you, a sky full of stars. Descendants that are too numerous for you to count. Abraham, do you want to know how big of a promise I am making to you? It's innumerable. It cannot be counted. It cannot be measured. It's so great. And with a great promise comes great hope and great expectation. With such a great promise, how long would you wait for it? A week? A couple weeks? Month? Ten years. Ten years, Abraham is waiting for this promise of God to be fulfilled. How long, O Lord? How long until you fulfill your promise? What happens next? Abraham and Sarah think, well, maybe we need to help God a little bit. Maybe we need to force God's hand. And so they take matters then into their own hands. God, we've got this. We've got it figured out. So what does Sarah do? Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham. Says, I can't bear you children. Maybe my maidservant Hagar can take her. Hagar conceives and bears a son, Ishmael. They've done it, right? They've seen the promises of God. No. They tried to accomplish the promise of God by their own human effort and ingenuity. The son was born according to the flesh or according to nature. He was born in a way that was antithetical or opposite to the promise of God. What were Abraham and Sarah trying to do? They were trying to force God's hand. Why did they try to get God on their own timetable? They did it because they wanted to save themselves. That is the line that comes through Hagar and Ishmael. It's nothing special. It's very natural. And those who are in this line are those who try to save themselves. They try to take matters into their own hands. They think it's their flesh, their strength, what they can do to get to God. They act by faith, but not by faith in God. It's faith in themselves, belief in themselves, and that goes against the way of God. It's not what God had intended. God's way, however, would prevail, and his way always is better, is it not? So what happens? Think about it. Abraham and Sarah are waiting 10 years. Now they have to wait 15 more years. 25 years. You wait that long. You want a test of your patience? Try waiting it. A quarter of a century. Why so long? Because with each passing day and with each passing year, it grew closer and closer to the impossible. God ensured that they were in the most impossible position from a human standpoint. 
Just even what Abraham's questions in uh, Genesis 17, 17 through 19. Then Abraham, it says, fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But what did God say? No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. They had reached the point of impossibility. There was no way that Abraham or Sarah could have a child now. They were too old. There is never a way this is going to happen, God. And this is the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. One is born in a natural way, and one is born in a supernatural way. The only way for Abraham and Sarah to bear a child when they were so old is for God to intervene, for God to do something miraculous, for God to save them. You are going to do nothing, Abraham and Sarah. In fact, you're as good as dead and it's your lack of strength, it's your weakness, it's when all hope looks like it's been lost, when it looks like you should despair, when you have nothing, that I will do my wonderful, amazing, almighty, and astounding work. And it leaves us speechless, dumbfounded. All there is left for us to do is to cover our mouths because there is no word we can add to God's great work of salvation. This is the contrast between all mankind. Either you are of Ishmael, born according to the flesh, or you are of Isaac, born through promise. Being born of Ishmael means you are working for your own salvation. You are trying to save yourself. You are desperate because everything depends upon you, and you feel as if you are the only person that you can trust to save yourself. But if you are of Isaac, you have been miraculously supernaturally saved. God has rescued you from yourself, from your sin, from your condemnation under the law. God has worked salvation in you that you could have never done for yourself because you were dead in trespasses and sin. Listen to what John says in his gospel about the work that God has done to save us through Jesus Christ. This is John chapter 1 verses 9 through 13. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But now listen. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, what? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but whose will? God, but of God. There's good news today. If you are one who is of Ishmael, you are trying to work your way to God, you are trying to work your own salvation, you're trying to save yourself, receive Christ, believe in his name. And that work, that supernatural, miraculous work of salvation will be done in you. It will not be done by your own effort, by your own desire of the flesh, but it will be done by God himself. That's what God does in us, does something miraculous and amazing. Number two this morning, learn from the covenants of the law. Learn from the covenants of the law. Of the law. So, first we're listening to the contrast between Ishmael and Isaac. Now we're learning from the covenants in the law. 
Paul in our first few verses has introduced a problem and now he begins to tease out this problem through interpreting the scriptures. And on the face of it, we might side-eye what Paul says because he talks about this account in Genesis and he says this, it can be interpreted allegorically. What? Can you do that? Paul can, Paul did. We would usually say allegory is not a valid interpretation of Scripture. We can look even in church history and see some off-the-wall allegorical interpretations that people have gotten from the text of God's Word. Off-the-wall that would make us say, how in the world did you get that from that? Allegorical interpretations can be dangerous because someone can take the text of Scripture and make it say whatever they want it to say. It's also dangerous because behind the allegorical interpretation is often the assumption that what is being interpreted in the text is not historical. It's false, it's fake, it's made up to make a theological point. Paul, in his interpretation, does not fall into either of these traps. What he is teaching is from God's word and is what God intended for us to understand. And so he is in no way denying the historicity of the events that have been recorded in the book of Genesis. Rather, what Paul is doing, which he says is an allegory, is something that is tempered and constrained by what we would call typology. He is speaking about types. He is seeing patterns there in God's word that are constraining his interpretation of the word. And we see these kind of types all throughout God's word. In fact, we could think of some common types that we read about. Jesus Christ is called the Passover lamb. He is the type, the Passover lamb that we read about in Exodus. It's pointing forward to the final type in Jesus Christ. The temple that was built is a type of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus Christ says in John 2? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. What is Jesus saying? That temple that you worship in, it's a type of me. I am the true temple. And so we see these kinds of types in the Bible, and here Paul now is talking about types, repeated themes that we see again and again. He's speaking in types and shadows to defend the new covenant that has come in Christ. So, in a sense, Paul is saying, Galatians, what I'm teaching you is about the gospel. What I am defending is the new covenant. And really, it's nothing new. You could have read about it in the law, in the Old Testament. It's been there since Genesis, and it's in these types and in these shadows that point forward to a greater reality, a greater fulfillment that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And so what is the interpretation that Paul puts, puts forward? You have to learn from these two covenants. He says, these two women, these two women and their respective children represent two covenants. There are various covenants in the Bible and those covenants form the backbone of scripture. Paul here highlights two. The first is what we would call, again, the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai after they had come out of Egypt the covenant that would have included the ten words from the fire, the ten commandments. And what kind of children, does Paul say here, did the Mosaic covenant produce? Did you read about it there? 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing what kind of children? Children for slavery. Think of it for a moment. The Israelites had just been led out of Egypt, had just been led out of slavery. They had been given this covenant by God there on Mount Sinai. And what did it produce? What was the result? The covenant that was given there produced children of slavery. People who would break the law. People who were enslaved to their sin. Which is seen even before the two tablets have been brought down the mountain. The people have already built the golden calf. So we begin with a pattern here, a type. Mount Sinai is in the pattern after Hagar. How do you know? Well, they both produce children of slavery. They both represent people who are under the law. They both represent people who are under the dominion of sin. But Paul goes further in his pattern. He says, so that we have Hagar, who's producing children of slavery. We have Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, that's producing children of slavery. And now we also have Jerusalem, who produces children of slavery. And he says, this is present-day Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem that has become a desolation. This is Jerusalem that has become a curse because they were living underneath the law. They were dominated by their sin. They realized that the only way that this curse can be removed from people like Hagar or people like those from Mount Sinai or people in those present-day Jerusalem, the only way that that curse can be removed is through Jesus Christ. They were enslaved to sin. They were under the law and they thought they could find righteousness in themselves, a righteousness that keeps the law, a righteousness that puts confidence in the flesh, who believe that their law-keeping, their religious activity can gain God's favor, that they can gain God's approval, that they can gain God's love. But remember, the law was never meant to give life. It was only meant to expose, show your sin, and press home in your heart that you were under condemnation for your sin under the law. It's meant to bring you to an end of yourself. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, should really make us run to Christ. And so Paul now gives us a glimpse into this other covenant. The covenant I believe he is referring to here is the covenant that's made with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that proclaims that it is through the offspring of Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And it's this covenant with Abraham that finds its fulfillment in the new covenant, that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Here, Paul says, it is the Jerusalem that is above. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that Hebrews talks about when speaking of Abraham, it says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. This heavenly Jerusalem, which the writer of Hebrews also says of us, but you have... In New, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where our citizenship lies. It lies in the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling. The Jerusalem that is now our home, the new Jerusalem. And what has happened? Think about this. Paul is saying, you are not of present day Jerusalem that is under the dominion of sin. You're under now 
the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem where Christ reigns and rules. What do we know about this new Jerusalem? When do we see it? If you go to the very book of Revelation, the very end, it talks about a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? That's our, that's our home. Eternal glory with God forever. Think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying, that's your home. Your home is this heavenly new Jerusalem. You are citizens of that heaven. This earth is not your home, but what has happened? As you live as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem here and now, it's like that future home has broken into this world. That eternal glory now is being shown through you, church. You are a part of the heavenly, the new Jerusalem. Live like it. Live like light in this world. Live like Jesus Christ is in you and abides in you and is working through you. He says, this Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, she is your mother. Sometimes we think the most important question we can ask is, who's your daddy? But Paul says, an equally important question is, who's your mommy? It's this Jerusalem that's from above. It's this one that's in the line of Sarah. Where all of Sarah's offspring are coming through promise. And Paul then does something glorious here in verse 27. He quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. When Sarah in this new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, is our mother, it heralds the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it declares our supernatural and miraculous salvation. Paul here, in quoting Isaiah 54.1, is reminding us of the plan of God's redemption. How does God's redemption happen? How does God make a people for himself? He makes it from nothing. Sarah, what was her problem? She was barren. Rebecca, what was her problem? She was barren. Rachel, what was her problem? She was barren. The wife of Manoah, who would eventually have Samson, what was her problem? She was barren. Hannah, the mother of Eli, what was her problem at first? She was barren. Elizabeth, who eventually bore John the Baptist, what was her problem? She was barren. But in all of these, over and over and over again, God brings life and gives life where there is no life. God causes the desolate place, the wilderness, to blossom and to bloom and explode with fruitfulness. What does the barren woman have? She has nothing. She is not able. She is not fertile. She has no prospects. She has no future. But this is who the gospel of grace is for. It's for the outcasts who have nothing. That's where God's grace shines the brightest. In, the, in fact, it's those who think that they are able, it's those who think that they are fertile who are warned here. It is the strong, the able, the fertile, the, those who think that they have something who in the end end up rejecting the gospel of grace, who end up turning their back on the Savior Jesus Christ because they believe they can be their own Savior. And if we learn anything 
from the covenant, from the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilled in the new covenant, in this covenant of grace, we learn this, it should bring joy to our lives. Rejoice, O barren one, rejoice. You who have nothing, you who were nobody, you who were not, had, had no prospects whatsoever, rejoice because God brought to life out of nothing. God spoke into the darkness and you were conceived and born. God spoke into the void and out came life, everlasting, eternal life. Because the descendants of the barren woman will be more numerous and will far outshine those of fertile myrtle. Oh, praise God for how he has removed our nakedness, our barrenness, and our shame. And how did he do it? How did God make the barren woman be fruitful and bear children? How did he do it? Where is Paul quoting from here? Isaiah 54, 1. What comes right before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. What's there? The suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's through the cross that we rejoice. It's through the cross that... God brings people to life and saves them. It's through the cross where we are made free, where we are children of promise. The covenant, the covenant of grace always points us to Christ and always points to his work of redemption in our lives. And so what do we need? We need freedom. This is number three. Live in the freedom of Christ and stand firm. Live in the freedom of Christ and stand firm. Paul now calls us children of Isaac. He says, you are born according to promise. You're not born according to the flesh by what you do. You're born because God made a promise and he's fulfilling his promise and that promise is seen in you. Do you see yourself as a fulfillment of God's promise? And he says, what's gonna happen to you now? What's gonna happen to you now? As a child of promise, what should you expect to be a part of your life? Paul is now applying his interpretation upon his hearers. Where does this ab application lead him? First, he says this, you will be persecuted by those who are born according to the flesh. Paul says this, you will be persecuted by those who are born according to the flesh. Paul here, I think, is specifically talking about the Judaizers, those people who were telling the Galatians, you need to circumcise yourself, you need to follow the law, you need to keep the law. Paul says those Judaizers who think they are sons of Isaac, who think that they're in the line of Isaac, they're really in the line of Ishmael. And what they're doing, they're not helping you, they're persecuting you. They're trying to cut you off from fellowship with me, Paul says. They're trying to cut you off ultimately from fellowship with Christ and God. It's amazing to think. Here were these people in the church who were in the line of Ishmael, who were in the line of the slave woman and who were persecuting the church. What do you think about when you think of persecution? Persecution. 
We think about it in the world. The world is against us. The world hates us. The world will do everything to try to stop us. And the world will, per- will persecute us with fierce opposition. But I believe that Paul is not talking about the world's persecution here. He's talking about persecution that arises in the church. Religious people who persecute us. The nominal church who would persecute us. The legalistic church that would persecute us. The pharisaical church that would persecute us. Are you prepared for some of the fiercest opposition to come against you, to come against us, and now it would even come from the church? Let us not think that we would escape this. You want to apply this to your life? Get ready for persecution to come from within the church, from pretenders, from the religious, from those who are born of the slave woman. The natural man in the church will persecute the supernatural man in the church because he hates and he despises the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're not out there, they're in here. And for the natural man, it upsets him. It angers him. The gospel of grace. And he hates it so much that anybody who is living by the gospel of grace, anybody who is living in the freedom that they get from Christ, he wants to crush it. Destroy it. That cannot and will not exist, he says. It's repulsive to him. And so it creates persecution in the church. Are you ready for that kind of persecution? John Stott, pastor from England, says this, the greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers who when they hear the gospel often embrace it, but the church the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. What are we told to do? What what does Paul quote here? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not receive inheritance, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. If you go back to to Genesis 21, Abraham questions that. "Eh, That sounds a little harsh. It sounds a little unloving. I don't know if we can do that. But what does God say? No, that's, that's necessary. Because Those people are actually distorting the gospel. Those people are actually demonstrating that they hate people's souls because they disciple people in such a way as to make them twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Only those of faith in Christ, only those who have been freed in Christ will receive the inheritance. And so, this last part, we have been set free through the redeeming cross of Jesus Christ. Christ has set us free for freedom, brothers and sisters. Do you live in that freedom of Christ? Christ has set us free from the tyranny of sin. 
from the stranglehold of death and from the destiny that was ours in the lake of fire. Christ has not set us free for slavery. My son and I have recently read a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. And about her struggles during World War II being placed in a concentration camp. Brothers and sisters, if you think you got it bad today, read that book. You'll realize whatever you're going through can't hold a candle. And as I read this verse, for freedom Christ has set us free. I think about, in that story, her desire to be out of that concentration camp. Her desire to be released from that death camp. How she even rejoiced with the death of her sister in that death camp because she was freed. It would have been ludicrous for her to have been released and then desired to go back. (laughs) She would never have done that. Yet do we ever, do we ever try to dig a tunnel back into the concentration camp, back into the death camp, back to be enslaved to sin? For freedom, Christ has set you free Live as those who are free. Brother and sister, if there is some sin in your life today that is, that is weighing you down, if there is some sin that feels like, I don't know how I can escape this, I don't know how I can get past this, sins like pornography, sins like gossip, sins like self-righteousness, sins like pride, sins like covetousness, sins like greed, the love of money, sins like discontentment, sins like anxiety, sins like lust, sins like selfishness. Brother and sister, don't stay there. Talk to me. Talk to someone else this morning. Live like someone who has been freed from that sin. Don't stay underneath that sin's dominion. He wants you to be free. He's died so that you can be free. Find someone who can encourage you, support you, love you, but who will not excuse your sin. Find someone who will hold you accountable. That might mean that they have to say tough things, ask tough questions. It might mean that they need to say something into your heart. But in the end... It's the application of the saving word of God by the power of the Spirit of God that you will know freedom. Jesus says this in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Brother and sister, we have to have a mentality that we are in a battle against sin. You can only imagine what it's like to be in a war where every sense of yours is heightened. With every snap of a twig, 
with every rustling sound, you wonder if that's the enemy that could end your life. We must have that same mentality. The mentality here where it says, stand firm, be immovable, Christian. Sin is not going to get the better of me. No, I'm going to run away from sin. I'm going to run to Christ because in Christ I am free indeed. Sin is not going to move me. We need to hear this imperative here. Stand firm. That's a direct command, believer. Stand firm. Do you know why the Bible has to give us commands and imperatives? Because those things are not easy for us to do. It's not easy to stand firm, but as you look to your freedom in Christ, as you look to him, as you look to the gospel of all grace, you will say, no, I don't want the yoke of slavery of sin. I want Christ and I want to be free. And so then you will stand firm. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, use your word in us today. Pray that we would live as those who have been freed. We would not harbor any sin. We would not coddle any sin in our lives. That we would run from it. Forsake it. Seek to put it to death. And run to the cross. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not received Christ as their Lord and Savior, may today be that day where they believe in his name. Where they look to the cross of Christ and say it's there. Where the yoke of slavery can be released, done away with. That they might know the path of true freedom is not in trying to save themselves but is in the salvation that comes from Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.